Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we will look at James Bullard, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and his approach to interest rates and inflation. Then we look at a type of business that's been both hurt and helped by the pandemic, co-working office spaces. My name is DC Benincas, and I'm joined again by my co-host Ian Laird. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. What about you? I've been pretty good. Got any fun plans this week? Well, by the time this episode airs, I'll have gone to the St. Louis Cardinals opening day on Thursday. Wow, that's going to be really incredible to see Albert Poole's first game back in a Cardinals uniform. Gotta say I'm a bit jealous, and I'm not even a Cardinals fan. Yeah, it'll be really fun. That opening day excitement is always fun to experience. Ready to get into headlines? Yep. What do you have first for us? Missouri Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden announced the body will likely approve legislation to create roadblocks for a controversial wind energy transmission line. The Grain Belt Express Power Line is a proposed project that would run 800 miles from southwestern Kansas to Indiana, carrying wind energy to hook into a power grid that serves eastern states. Invenergy, the project's developer, wants to use eminent domain to secure more land for the power line, but some Missouri lawmakers are trying to keep the company from taking homeowners' properties. The Missouri House passed a bill to the Senate last week that would prevent the project's developers from pursuing condemnation if landowners won't sell their land. Rowden says the Senate will prioritize approving this legislation before it adjourns next month. One of Missouri's newest industries is joining a unionization wave spreading in many sectors. Eight employees at St. Louis Medical Marijuana Dispensary Route 66 have voted to unionize, becoming the first cannabis workers in Missouri to do so. The workers voted to have United Food and Commercial Workers represent them in contract negotiations with management, according to a news release. The union has been attempting to organize Missouri cannabis workers since last fall. These efforts come as marijuana could be fully legalized through a ballot initiative or the Missouri legislature. The Missouri House Budget Committee reversed a $360 million cut to a program that would improve water infrastructure in the state. The committee planned on cutting $51 million from the program, but committee leaders changed their minds after hearing objections from colleagues about the importance of using the funds to eliminate lead water supply lines. Without using the funds, the state could have fallen short of its goal of eliminating the lines. Missouri has the sixth most service lines made of lead, of any state in the U.S., according to a report released last year by the Natural Resources Defense Council. And now that underground work is finished, above-ground work began Wednesday for the Kansas City Streetcar Extension. The system will now have a a three-and-a-half-mile route from Union Station to the University of Missouri, Kansas City. University officials say the new streetcar line will increase students' mobility and increase the school's visibility to the community. City officials say the project will take a little more than two years to complete, with riders able to hop on the new line sometime in 2025. For our first story, we would like to welcome fellow Missouri Business Alert reporter Kelly DeRook. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I just got back from an event this morning. The St. Louis Federal Reserve President, James Bullard, gave a presentation at the University of Missouri, and I'm excited to share some details from it. I'm eager to hear about it. What did Bullard talk about? Well, he talked about something that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, So first of all, uh, U.S. inflation is exceptionally high. 
Okay, so he's talking about rising prices. I know inflation has been in the news a lot recently. Can we quantify just how much prices are rising? In February, the Consumer Price Index, which measures the changes in prices for a variety of common goods and services, rose by 7.9%. Core inflation, which excludes food and energy prices, grew 5.6% annually as of February, a high not seen since 1983. And what did Bullard have to say about those rising prices? He acknowledged that inflation has been rising recently, but said that the Federal Reserve is not as far behind the curve in addressing that inflation as some people believe. He feels that the credibility of the central bank and its past experience fighting inflation will allow the Fed to manage it with gradual increases in interest rates, which Bullard would like to see as high as 3.5 percent by the end of the year. So we're not as far behind the curve. So not all hope is lost. And uh, this is the basic gist of this story. Why did he recommend this? Well, as a member of the Fed's Federal Open Markets Committee, Bullard helped shape U.S. monetary policy. He feels that raising interest rates aggressively will combat inflation. Can you explain how increasing rates can curb rising prices? Well, basically, inflation occurs when a currency can no longer buy as much as it once did. Not all inflation is bad, though, as the Fed usually targets 2% annual increase in the price of goods and services. Subtle inflation like this is less noticed by consumers. I know inflation is often associated with the growth in an economy's size, so it makes sense that minor inflation can be good. How does increasing interest rates change the value of money? Raising interest rates makes borrowing money more expensive, so lending and spending slow down. That puts a damper on the acceleration of asset prices. The Fed has historically employed this tactic to fight inflation, so even signaling their intention to raise interest rates will move markets. If raising interest rates will stop inflation, why did the Fed only raise rates by a quarter of a percentage point in March? Well, it's not necessarily a simple fix. Raising interest rates can curb inflation, but it could also spur a recession. Higher interest rates will mean it will cost more to borrow money. While this can slow inflation, it could also halt economic growth and have unforeseen long-term results. Bullard has advocated for more aggressive increases, but the Fed is taking an incremental approach to raising rates. What could happen if the Fed raises rates too aggressively? So history can actually give us some insight into this. From 1979 to 1981, former Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker increased interest rates from 10 percent to 20 percent. As some people may remember, this ended the great inflation of the late 70s, but plummeted the economy into recession during the early 80s. All of the asset prices had been based upon low interest rates, but when rates rose, inflated assets saw their values plummet. The bubble burst, leaving people in banks with less valuable assets. And are we in a similar situation today? Yes, it's very similar. Interest rates have been kept artificially low for over three years and throughout the pandemic. These low rates made money more available, thus causing inflation. Some fear that an aggressive rate hike could thrust our economy into a recession now. It seems like a little bit of a catch-22 situation. What did Bullard have to say about these risks? He felt that it may be too soon in this process to begin worrying about a recession because, with rates as low as they have been, these incremental increases will only raise rates to a neutral level that does not promote rises in inflation. So uh, that's why I've been puzzled by um, a lot of chatter about, you know, we're going to cause a recession or something. I mean, we've only raised the policy rate only slightly and to a level that would normally be considered extremely accommodative anyway. So um, I think these initial moves are uh, relatively costless, and we can do them relatively rapidly. 
Um, and then once we get up to some higher level, then we can start to argue about whether we're going too far or whether we're putting downward pressure on inflation or not. But that's, that's an argument for another day after we've made some other moves on the policy rate. It sounds like only time will tell how these rate increases will affect the economy. Thank you, Kelly, for stopping by to join us. No problem. Thank you for having me. For our next story, we are going to look at co-working spaces. As a reminder for those who aren't familiar, a co-working space is a shared office space with workers from different companies. I know co-working spaces have been talked about more in the media during the pandemic. How has the pandemic affected these spaces? Well, it's natural to assume that the co-working space industry has been harmed by the pandemic. They require people to work together in the same physical space. And the pandemic caused a shift to working at home that seemed like it would deal these offices a big blow. Some economists and real estate experts even predicted the pandemic would bring the death of the co-working space. But the pandemic hasn't only had that effect, right, DC? Yeah, the beginning of the pandemic halted operations and stunted profits for many co-working spaces because workers were sent home to avoid exposure to the COVID-19 virus. But in the long run, the pandemic has changed the culture of the workplace in ways that actually helped the co-working space industry. For instance, the pandemic has caused many businesses and employers to question the need for a permanent office. 74% of Fortune 500 CEOs said in a Fortune poll last year that they expect to reduce office space in the future. Businesses scaling down their office spaces could draw workers who value the social atmosphere of an office to co-working spaces. I see. So the co-working space is an alternative to the traditional company headquarters, meaning the reduction of traditional office space could make way for the growth of co-working spaces. Exactly. I talked to two owners of the campus co-working space in Jefferson City, Sarah Bull and Missy Creed McFerrin, about the growth of their business and the positives of co-working spaces. Creed McFerrin says one perk is that people can connect with workers at different companies. You know, meeting people that you wouldn't normally meet and then in a setting that's very comfortable to be able to have a conversation. It's not like you're at a networking event and you're trying to talk to multiple people. It's just you're getting coffee or, you know, you're taking a break for a minute and you can get to know someone on a more... I don't know if authentic is the right word, but casual way. I can see how meeting people would feel more organic in an office setting compared to a more formal networking event. What other benefits come from working with employees from different companies? Bowles says working alongside companies in different industries can offer valuable insights. You're in your business working every day and you can bring somebody a question to get an outside perspective on something, um, an example, and this, it, it wasn't so much help, but it was kind of a unique example. I was working on in Google AdWords and somebody who has an office upstairs came down and he's like, I wrote that code. I own, you know, and he used to work for Google and that was just something unique to where I had another question. He was able to answer it while I was in there. Well, we've covered some of the benefits of working in close proximity to workers from different companies. What are the other benefits? Well, one benefit is that different businesses can reduce operating expenses by sharing amenities. Normally, a company has to pay for their own printer, water fountains, staplers, and other equipment. But at a co-working space, you can share. Here's Creed McFerrin again. The biggest benefit is that it's, one, it's eco-friendly. Um, we're sharing amenities. So 
instead of needing five printers in your different five home offices, you can share a printer. That makes sense. So normally employers renting out these co-working spaces just need to pay rent and don't have to deal with all the overhead costs of amenities like equipment, utilities, and custodial services. Yes, exactly. So we've talked a little bit about the benefits of co-working spaces, but how much is the industry expected to grow? To my understanding, it seems like co-working spaces have a long way to go before they can compete with traditional office headquarters. The co-working space industry might never grow to the size of permanent offices. There are clusters of co-working spaces in St. Louis and Kansas City, but there are few in smaller metro and rural areas around the state. But even if it never catches up to traditional offices, companies could still borrow ideas and strategies from co-working spaces in the future. Creed McFerrin says other businesses in the area are already adopting similar practices to her business. And they're trying to kind of do the same thing where they have industry-specific businesses under one hood, not necessarily open co-working space, but more so along those traditional lines of like shared office space. So I think in that sense, the concept has, has been more accepted and practiced, but there have not been any other co-working spaces open. It's now time for Words of the Week. Ian, what do you have for us this time? I'm rolling with Wayfair. That has been a talking point in Missouri for a while now. What is Wayfair's significance in recent news? In the local elections earlier this week, Columbia and Boone County voters approved what's commonly called a Wayfair tax. Could you explain what this tax is and the story behind similar measures? Sure. It's a tax that can be imposed by a local government on goods that are purchased outside of its state. The term Wayfair comes from a 2018 U.S. Supreme Court case, South Dakota versus Wayfair, where the court ruled in favor of the state of South Dakota and a law that allowed them to collect taxes on out-of-state companies that surpassed certain thresholds for the value of goods sold or number of transactions within the state. In Boone County, the measure has appeared on the ballot before but failed. Last year, the state legislature passed a similar tax, which will go into effect at the start of next year. And what are the effects of these taxes? The primary goal of a Wayfair tax is to discourage online purchases and importing goods from other locations and to encourage the purchase of goods from local vendors and retailers. Along with an upswell for local businesses, the tax is also expected to create $5.6 million annually in Columbia. The city said it will spend the money on public safety and infrastructure projects. Now it's over to you. What's your word of the week? I chose decriminalization. Is this in reference to the federal marijuana legislation? It actually is. Last week, the U.S. voted to decriminalize marijuana 220 to 204 in a move that would remove marijuana from the controlled substances list, expunge federal marijuana convictions, and add a tax on marijuana products. What is next for the law? It now moves over to the Senate, where Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been outspoken in his support of legalization. A similar measure was passed in 2020, but the Senate did not take up that version of the bill. What impact could this have on Missouri? Missouri legalized medical marijuana in 2018, and since then, discussions over legalizing recreational use have been ongoing. Federal decriminalization would eliminate the need for such legislation and would clear up some of the inconsistencies that exist across state lines. You mentioned that a tax was an element of the bill. What would the revenue raised from that go to? So it is unclear right now how much money the tax would raise, but it would likely be a fairly sizable portion. 
The revenue would go toward the funding of programs that aim to help communities that have been disproportionately affected by drug enforcement and marijuana criminalization policies. There were also amendments added that included measures to improve driver safety and to determine if drivers who are pulled over are impaired. With that, we'll head into our final segment. For this week's closing thought, we will go back to Sarah Bull from Campus Coworking Space. Her business had to downsize into an office space that was half the size of her original space. And while downsizing is never ideal for a company, Bull says the move helped her business. I mean, it wasn't our choice and we didn't necessarily uh, expect or want it to happen. But I think when we downsized, um, we were able to kind of refocus on, you know, really getting in the number that we needed to run the business and then to grow from there instead of having to be constantly um, working on the marketing to make sure we were full and able to, you know, make all the payments. And yeah, it, I think in the beginning though, it's not what we wanted. It did help us kind of refocus. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 project for providing the music for this episode. For my co-host, Ian Laird, assistant producers Kaylee Anagita and Christian McDonald, and editors Kelly DeRook, Jack Knowlton, James Marshall, and Wicker Perlis, I'm DC Benincasa. This has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.